News of the Times, Frightful Fridays, Scandal and Murder Stories from the Stage. Welcome to News of the Times. In today's episode, we are once again looking at stories from the stage that made the headlines in their day. Like today, the world of stage, the actors, the scandals were big news. We start this episode in 1825 with one of the leading actors of his day, Edmund Keane. Keane received high praise from notables of the time, including Jane Austen. He performed for royalty. Managing to get seats for his performances were considered almost an impossibility. And then it all fell apart with a scandal that rocked London and ultimately impacted the rest of his life. Our second story takes place in 1895. English couple, volatile Arthur A. Dacre and successful Amy Roselle were married in 1884 and insist that they will only take part in plays where they can be together. The couple lose work and run up considerable bills. Thinking they will make a fresh start, they move to Australia, no doubt under the belief that they will be welcomed with open arms after having played in the London theatre. But Australia does not warm to them, and their financial distress increases until it ends in a shocking tragedy. Two infamous stories of scandal and murder from the stage is today's episode of Frightful Fridays. We hope you enjoy the show. Edmund Keane, 1825 Public Scandal and Career Destruction In the 19th century, Edmund Keane was considered one of the premier classical actors of his time. Keane was known for his performances in Shakespeare, and like many of his contemporaries at the time, Keane approached the dramatic roles using his considerable force of nature with rapid shifts of voice and facial expression. He was, by all accounts, absolutely magnetic on stage. Lord Byron raved about his performances and his genius. Jane Austen mentions her difficulty in getting seats for a show in which he was starring in 1814 in Drury Lane. Keane was an internationally renowned actor of his time, performing in England, New York, Canada and France. About Edmund Keane Born in 1787 in Westminster in London from poor parents, Keane was small in stature. He was described as mercurial, impatient, brilliant. He received much support in the arts as a child, and in his youth he was mentored by Charlotte Tideswell, an actress of her time. It took some ten years playing various acting roles before he was discovered. Keane held a number of jobs in his youth playing roles in smaller productions. In 1808, Keane married Mary Chambers, who was a lead actress in the acting troupe he was engaged with. Mary and Keane went on to have two sons, Howard Keane and Charles Keane. Charles followed in his father's footsteps and also took to the stage. The Scandal 
In early 1820, Keane became romantically involved with Charlotte Cox, a married woman. By all accounts, it was a tempestuous affair which would fit the accounts of Keane's mercurial temper. Keane was still very much a married man himself. The relationship ended acrimoniously between the two in 1824. Charlotte's husband subsequently sued Keane for adultery. In the court case that followed, Keane's private love letters were read aloud in the courtroom. The embarrassment was excruciating. The scandal considered utterly shocking in 1825, especially from such a public figure. From the London Courier and Evening Gazette, the 17th of January, 1825, Court of King's Bench. The doors of the new court at Guildhall were surrounded by eight o'clock, with persona anxious to get into the gallery, but the doors were not opened until nine o'clock. There was then a strong rush. Lord Chief Justice Abbott entered the court at half-past nine, the jury being sworn. Mr. Law opened the proceedings. It was an action brought by John Albion Cox against Edmund Keane for criminal conversations with the plaintiff's wife. The damages were laid at £2,000. It was said it was his painful duty to bring before them a case of the most aggravated nature and which was characterised by the most cruel rites of hospitality that, perhaps, had ever been brought before the public. The plaintiff had to complain of a series of wrongs. Both parties were well known. The defendant, Edmund Keane, occupied a most prominent situation. He distinguished himself suddenly and seized at once what others vainly endeavoured to get during years. The success had been followed by much wealth. Before that period, Mr. Keane was the humble member of a strolling company in the west of England. His excellence was observed by occasional fits of greatness, which, however, was only distinguished by few. Before the sudden celebrity he played Dorchester and his merits were there discovered by Alderman Cox. Mr. Cox discovered his abilities and became the friend of a friendless young man named Edmund Keane. Mr. Cox, he repeated, was instrumental in introducing Mr. Keane to the public with what effect the jury knew best. Mr. Cox had the powers to discover theatrical excellence. Mrs. Cox was also a person of considerable attainments, possessing a taste for dramatic performances and intimate, of course, with the writings of Shakespeare. She therefore admired, with her husband, the dramatic powers of Mr. Keane. Much intimacy arose between the families, but Mr. Keane was a married man, and therefore there was no impropriety in the visits. He was not introduced as a bachelor. He came as a married man and was attended by Mrs. Keane, his wife. 
Mr. Keene appeared in the company as a father and a husband, so that there was no impropriety in visits, not even any object of suspicion. However, this confidence was misplaced. Mr. Cox was ignorant of the fact of their relationship. No means of discovering it had come to his knowledge. From the documents which he now possessed, many, many letters, it was beyond dispute that an intimacy had long existed, not less than seven years. During that period there was every reason to believe that the fatal attachment had not only existed but had been gratified, and during that period the same confining intercourses continued between the parties, Mr. Keene being received at all times in the most friendly manner by Mr. Cox. The letters, however, proved beyond dispute that a criminal intimacy had long existed between Mr. Keene and Mrs. Cox. While Mr. Cox received Mr. Keene as a friend, this criminal intimacy was discovered March last, when Mr. Cox left his house for the purpose of attending to businesses of emergency. Upon his return he found a mass of letters which proved incontestably the criminal intercourse between his wife and the defendant. The earliest of these letters was dated April the 5th, 1820. In the first of this effusion, he addressed Mrs. Cox in terms of warm but respectful attachment, which began with these words, Dearest of women. It stated that the writer was convinced that he and the woman he addressed, the said Mrs. Cox, were formed for each other that the highest applause was bestowed upon his professional exertions, but that those applauses were as nothing if his Charlotte was not near. He stated that he, with delight, looked forward to his return to town on Sunday when he should hold his dear little girl in his arms. He called on her to banish all suspicion, for from the first moment but that he had beheld her, he loved her, and he felt that she loved him. For in his heart he had obtained the very summit of his wishes. More letters over the years are read in court, which each new letter demonstrating more and more intimate details, as well as no small regard for his own praised abilities. Simultaneously, he remained best friends with Mr. Cox, Charlotte's husband, who had no suspicion whatsoever regarding the relationship between his best friend, the man he had discovered and helped to place on the stage, and his own wife. This relationship continued for some years. Keane's fame grew on the stage and it involved international performances. In addition to the letters presented in court, Servant testimony confirmed that an improper relationship indeed had been taking place between Keane and Mrs. Cox. Stories also came out of his alcohol indulgences and a proclivity 
to habituating prostitutes. Indeed, his character could not have taken a worse battering. With the overwhelming evidence, Keane was found guilty. Rather than the £2,000 compensation that had been requested, Keane was ordered to pay £8,000, approximately £92,000 in 2023. His long-enduring wife divorced him with great sympathy from the public. The once highly admired Edmund Keane found all of his support vanish completely overnight. Keane, seemingly unaware how drastic the reaction was against him, returned to Drury Lane one week after the trial. The Times declared that his appearance on the stage was as great an outrage as if he had walked naked through the streets at midday. From the London Courier and Evening Gazette, the 25th of January, 1825, Mr. Keane. Mr. Keane made his first appearance last night at Drury Lane Theatre. We have hitherto abstained from taking any part in the controversy which had been carried on respecting this individual, and we do not propose to say much. If Mr. Keane had possessed a friend in the world capable of giving him sound advice, and if he himself were capable of receiving it, it would not yesterday have presented himself before a British audience. That friend would have told him, you may despise, but you cannot deny public opinion. There is a manifest indecency revolting to all proper feeling in your coming forward now. The nature of the exhibition so recently made in a court of justice was such as should make any man who was the object of it avoid the public eye for a time. Be assured, it is no fastidious delicacy, no puritanical refinement of morality which is excited against you. It is a common feeling which suggests itself at once to every mind that a man who has subjected himself to such an exposure as you have owes it to himself not to glory in his shame. In ordinary cases, a man in such circumstances might feel his cheek tinged with a blush at the meeting of a private friend. What then? should he feel when standing before assembled thousands of his countrymen. The character of Hamlet supplied you with a, a favourite quotation while you were debauching your friend's wife. Assume a virtue if you have it not. On stage he was booed loudly. Fruit was thrown at him, and the great love that had poured out to him from the audience before had now turned to hate. Keane had difficulty finding work and turned to alcohol as a refuge. Keane became increasingly more and more fragile. Eventually, the antipathy towards Keane eased and he managed to return to the stage, but by now, Keane 
was an incurable drunk and his ability to perform was compromised. On March the 25th, 1833, Keane was playing Othello with his son Charles as Iago. In the midst of the performance, Keane collapsed in tears into the arms of his son. He died two months later, a very broken man. From 1833 we jump to 1895, Sydney, and the story of two English actors who had moved to Melbourne to try their luck there. This was unsuccessful. Amy Roselle and Arthur Dacre, 1895, The Murder and Suicide Pact. Arthur Dacre and Amy Roselle, both English, were married in 1884. Both had acting careers, although arguably Amy Roselle was the more famous. Arthur Dacre looked to have had a strong personality. In 1890, there are accounts of his having difficulties in New York with the production company there. He is dismissed from his role with two weeks' notice and Dacre is threatening to sue. In plays in which they acted together, Amy Roselle regularly received rave reviews, whereas Arthur Dacre was lucky to get a mention. Within England, the Dacres ran up debts, which were increasing with less and less chance of getting ahead. Whether it was what seemed to have been Dacre's regular run-ins with others, or some other reason, the pair stated they were out of work and unable to get work. The couple insisted upon their being hired together in the same productions. It would seem that Amy was more in demand than her husband, and because of their requirement to be hired as a couple, the pair received no offers for work. The Dakers sold up and moved to Australia, hoping to make their fortunes there at Arthur's insistence. No doubt they thought that their prestige of having worked on the London stage would help them to easily get work in provincial Australia. Such was not the case. From the Bendigo Independent, the 19th of November 1895, shocking end of two theatrical artists. A most sad tragedy by which two gifted visitors to Australia lost their lives occurred in Sydney on Sunday afternoon. At first, a vague report that Mr Arthur Dacre, the well-known actor, had murdered his wife, was received with general disbelief by those who knew how devotedly Amy Roselle and her husband were attached to one another. Later the news was amplified, and it was told that Arthur Dacre, after shooting his wife, had destroyed himself. This sad tale proved to be too true. Arthur Dacre and Amy Roselle came to Australia with a European reputation as artists of sterling merit, but for one reason or another their visit here was singularly disastrous in both Melbourne and Sydney. They seemed to be under some evil star. A small section of the public went to see and appreciate them, but the general crowd to whom it is given to endow or not theatrical ventures with success held aloof. 
there is not the slightest doubt that a long train of misfortune which afflicted them since their arrival in Australia was the direct cause of their tragic death. Mr. and Mrs. Dacre came to Sydney a few months ago and played at Her Majesty's under George Reynolds's managementship. The season was not a success. Later they opened at another theatre on their own account and lost largely on the venture. After this disappointment, Mr. and Mrs. Dacre still played in Sydney. When the dramatic company opened at the Royal, they were given parts by Mr. George Leach. That engagement was mutually satisfactory. On Monday night, the silence of Dan Maitland was to be staged with Arthur Dacre and Amy Roselle in leading parts. Both actively rehearsed and only on Sunday morning Mr. Dacre was going over his part with his valet, Alex Watson. The couple boarded at 129 Macquarie Street, and on Sunday afternoon at about four, Dacre sent for his valet and gave him a number of letters to deliver and post, and delayed him whilst he continued writing. Mrs. Dacre was at the time lying on a couch in the room with a kerchief over her face. As the valet went out to the street with a number of epistles to deliver, he heard a crash of broken crockery, but did not return. A servant in the house was, however, alarmed, as with the crash there seemed mingled a dull, muffled sound, as of a pistol shot. Going up to Dacre's rooms, he found the door bolted on the inside. She could hear a man groaning. When she rattled the door, Dacre mumbled from the inside, Burst! Open the door! She ran down the stairs and screamed out to Mr. Hinton, son of the proprietress, who rushed to the door, but their effort to open it was in vain. Hinton then climbed into the room by a balcony door. As he entered, Dacre staggered towards him, moaning, Oh God, what agony! What agony! Then Dacre fell down between the bed and a table, and upon the bed, in her nightgown, and with a great red stain on her breast, was Mrs. Dacre. She was evidently dead. Doctors and police were soon on the spot. Mrs. Dacre was quite dead. Two bullets had pierced her left breast and had probably gone straight to her heart. At any rate, she died painlessly. In fact, she almost seemed to be sleeping as she rested with a quite calm face. Mr. Dacre died a few seconds after the arrival of the surgeon. On the table in the room was a note scrawled with a tremulous hand. Thank the Lord we died together. There is no more shots left. Arthur Dacre had evidently written then after he had sent his wife to her desired death. If he had intended to use the one more shot for himself, he changed his mind, for his own life was ended by a razor cut which went through the cartoid artery. The razor was found in a basin which was almost filled with blood. Pathetic Letters Mr. Herbert Layton, an intimate friend of the Dacres, 
received two letters from Arthur Dacre today, evidently just before his death. One said, Dear Leighton, we have really struggled this against this. My sweet wife has now lived a noble heroine's life, but talent and honest hard work are the last things they want now. We have never failed in our duty to the public before. I have never missed a night. Do try to get poor Miss Hardy home. Arthur Dacre The second letter said, I want to make as little fuss as possible. Miss Hardy's address is the Waverley Hotel in Melbourne. She has written to us, and I am most anxious five pounds should be telegraphed to her first thing in the morning. There are a few pounds in my cash box. I have paid my bill until tomorrow, and I ask that you sell our clothes and trinkets we have. Bury us as cheaply and unostentatiously as quiet as possible, and without any name on our headstone. If you put anything on our headstone, you might simply put, They loved each other, and in their death they were undivided. The painful occurrence recorded above loses two very capable players. The loss will be more keenly felt in the case of Miss Amy Roselle, who, as an actress both in tragedy and comic parts, had held a position in the front rank of English players for some years past. By competent critics, she was given a place next to Ellen Terry as an actress of power and versatility. Both Mr. and Mrs. Dacre were accorded a benefit before leaving Melbourne. They played a brief season at Adelaide, which yielded them no better financial results than their Melbourne experience, and then they went to Sydney, where they also met with bad luck. So much so that they had to abandon all hope of making money on their own account and accept positions as subordinates under another manager. Before their death, thus for several weeks prior to the tragedy, they had been playing with Mr. George Leach in the land of the moor at the Theatre Royale, and they were expected to reappear in Melbourne shortly in that play. Mr. Dacre was a gentleman of good breeding and keen intelligence, though at times he displayed a peculiar and eccentric manner. These were accentuated after the failure of the Melbourne season, and there is no doubt that the fact of he and his wife having broken up their London home to come so far abroad only to meet with ill fortune, preyed on his mind and impaired his reason. The death was regarded as a murder. Suicide pact given the calmness of Amy's corpse that the death was planned was clear from the letters Dacre sent out before he committed the evil deed. In subsequent articles, the loss of Amy Roselle was said to be felt keenly. There were few comments regarding Arthur Dacre, a tragic end to a talented couple. That concludes this episode of Frightful Fridays, Scandal and Murder Stories from the Stage. We very much hope you enjoyed 
this show.